If you're new here with us, we have been working our way through Luke, and we find ourselves this morning at the beginning of Luke chapter 6. Uh, and what we're going to find is that there really are, uh, there's a continuation from uh, many of the themes that we found in Luke 5, probably not surprisingly. Uh, we've seen in Luke 5, Jesus makes some amazing kind of declarations, uh, making clear why he came. So he said that Jesus came to save sinners, right? I said, that's why I've come. I've come to deal with those who are in sin. Um, he also made it very clear that he came to do this through something new. What we come to know is the, the new covenant, the new gospel that he brings. And in our scenes today, uh, really what we see is um, sort of a, a confrontation between the old and the new. Uh, we see uh, two instances of confrontation on two different Sabbaths, and there between uh, the Pharisees and Jesus himself. And so on the one hand, we kind of have the Pharisees with the old system of legalistic righteousness, and on the other hand, we have Jesus and the new way of mercy and grace. And so there's two scenes. I'm going to read them each in turn. We're going to read one, kind of dig into it a bit, and then read the other. And I want you to kind of keep an ear out for this, this conflict that is going to develop. So uh, I'm going to read through verses 1 to 5 to begin with. You're welcome to read along or just listen. This is God's word to us this morning. So on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, this is Jesus and his disciples, uh, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So we're going to stop there. It's the initial scene where we see, uh, I think really quickly, you can see that the conflict that is developing there. And what we're going to find is that Jesus doesn't really shy away from this conflict. He actually kind of prov provokes it in this one, and especially in the second scene. And the reason he's, he's doing this is he wants to provoke change. He wants to give uh, everyone uh, there who's listening, and in particular the Pharisees themselves, an opportunity to, to assess their view of godliness. Because that's really what Jesus wants to change. He wants to bring about a renewed sense of godliness in the people of God. And so that's our, our big idea, really. Specifically, what change does Jesus want to bring? Jesus restores mercy to the heart of godliness. Restores mercy to the heart of godliness. And we see him do this in uh, really three ways. Two in this first section. Uh, now, surprisingly, what we're going to find is that even though this is a, two scenes occurring on the Sabbath, it's actually bigger than that. It's not just how to keep the Sabbath, but how it is that the people of God should, should respond to the people in their lives and to God himself. So the first thing we see in terms of Jesus restoring mercy is that he appeals to the Old Testament. Uh, let's look again at the very first couple of verses on the Sabbath. While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So what's the big deal here? You you might think initially that it must be theft, right? Because they're stealing someone else's grain. But in fact, that's not the case. Uh, you were actually allowed to, in Deuteronomy, it says you're allowed to go and uh, take some grain or some of your neighbor's crops if you're hungry. You're not allowed to bring a big bag, like a backpack with you and fill it. You're not allowed to bring a sickle and harvest your neighbor's grain. You can't do that. But this was an allowance to care for those in need. Uh, if you're really hungry, you could go and you could take some of the grain. So it wasn't theft. That wasn't the big issue. The issue was whether they had worked on the Sabbath. 
So we're going to look back at Exodus and see what God says about keeping the Sabbath. Here's Exodus 20. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So the big idea behind the Sabbath was that uh, the people of God would rest one day a week in the same pattern that God had given in the creation of the world. Work for six days, rested for one. And in that rest, the people of God were to rejoice in God, to be thankful, and to demonstrate their trust. Right? By not working, what you're saying is, God, I, I trust you ultimately for my provision. Instead of working every moment of every day that I could to ensure that I have enough, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to honor you. And I'm going to enjoy the rest that I have in being able to trust you with the bigger things of my life. So the Sabbath really was a joy-filled day for those to whom it was initially given. But over time, uh, the emphasis shifted. Right? It became much more about a prohibition against work. In fact, by the time of Jesus, there were 39 additional points of regulation to help people to understand what's work and, and what's not work. And so included within those, within those prohibitions were um, uh, reaping, threshing, and winnowing. So that's what you needed to do to harvest grain. And so they had added, just to be clear, hey, here's the things you're not supposed to do. And so when the Pharisees saw the disciples picking some grain and rubbing it in their hands, they were like, oh, they're, they're harvesting the grain. That's work. And they, they accused. They were like, what are you doing? How could you break the law in this grievous way? Now, it's interesting. Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't defend the actions of his disciples right away. And he could have, right? He could have said, listen, guys, it's like a few handfuls of grain, I think we're, I think we're just take, making a mountain over a molehill here, right? It's, it's not that much grain. He could have said, uh, we're not actually breaking the law of God. We're, we're just going against these regulations that you made, your ancestors made. This is not really breaking the law of God per se. But he doesn't, he doesn't take that route. Instead, what he does is he tells a story that goes deeper. He refers to a story from the Old Testament that really reveals the true essence of the law. And so if you look at verse 3 and 4, Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. So this is a reference to a story of David in 1 Samuel 21. David was um, anointed king of Israel, but he wasn't yet king. Saul was king, and Saul was a very jealous and violent king. And so someone came to David and said, look, Saul, he's going to kill you. You have to get out of the city. And so David, just in a moment, he, he ran with, with his men, some of his men, and then as he was going, he realized we don't have any supplies. How are we going to live? We're going to go into the wilderness? There's nothing there. So he stopped by the house of God and spoke with the priest and said, do you have like any bread? We need like five loaves of bread, something. And the priest said, wait, I don't have any bread. All I have is the bread of the presence. And so the bread of the presence were 12 loaves of bread. They're stacked in groups of six. They're put on a gold table in the house of God. And they were there to symbolize God's provision for his people. This was not bread that you could like, if you were peckish, right, throughout the week, you'd make a sandwich. Oh, this bread, not that kind of bread. This was holy bread, consecrated bread. The, the um, priest would put it out on the Saturday. It would stay there until the next Saturday. Then they could eat it, and they'd put new bread out. No one else was supposed to even 
touch the bread. But interestingly, Ahimelech, who was the priest, he doesn't say to David, I, I don't have anything for you. What he says is, uh, are you and your men ceremonially clean? And David said, yes, we are. And so then Ahimelech, seeing that they're starving, he gives them some of this bread, the bread of the presence. And that's what Jesus is, is referring to. Now, the Pharisees, they knew this story. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, but they had never considered what the story says about the law of God and the character of God. See, from a technical point of view, Ahimelech should never have given that bread over to David, but he looked at the situation not from a narrow legalistic point of view, but from the broader picture of God's character, God's mercy, God's grace. And he saw before him men who were starving, Men who were going off to the wilderness would have nothing to eat, and so he did what he thought was right in, in keeping with what God would want him to do. He, he fed them. He gave them some bread. What Jesus is saying in the story is, look to the Pharisees. If you really knew your Old Testament, you would know that mercy is at the heart of God and his law, not an emphasis on legalism. In fact, we find this emphasis throughout the Old Testament. Here's a couple of verses that show God's, God's heart. Hosea 6, 6, God says, for I desire steadfast love and mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's saying, rather than just the religious observances, what I'm really concerned with is your heart, your love for me and your love for people. In Micah 6, 8, uh, it says here, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but that you do justice and that you love kindness and that you walk humbly with your God. So what we see here is, is that mercy and grace and love, it, it really is at the heart of God all the way back in the Old Testament, which, which should kind of make us wonder. I mean, we're, Jesus has said that this is something new that I'm doing, but it's like it's not completely new. Right? There's a continuity with the old. In fact, you might say it's, it's, it's a renewal, right? a, a restoration. That's why I use that word in our, in our big idea. Jesus restores mercy to the heart of godliness because to restore something means to bring it back to its original glory. And that's what we see Jesus doing. That he's saying you've missed something. In the way that your whole view of lawfulness and godliness, you've missed something. It needs to be restored. Now, this idea of restoration, I think, is really helpful, one that I think would, would help us to understand what it is, what Jesus is really all about. And so when I think of restoration, I immediately think of um, art restoration, because it's amazing to see some works of art that have, that have sort of become uh, really kind of tired and dingy over time, and then see the restoration process. So I found uh, one of these works of art. This was a restoration that was done a couple of years ago at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, this is a family portrait by Charles Lebrun, and so we're going to dim the lights a little bit so you can see it there. Oh, yeah, you can see it in all its... Uh... Now, this is actually the way it was before it was restored. It still looks pretty nice. Um, I think it's interesting that for a family to get a picture taken, you had to pose for, like, weeks, I guess, with your kids there, and they would paint you, so we have nothing to complain about with our digital cameras. Um, but what, we, what you can't really see is that actually there's a, yellow, there's a varnish hundreds of years of varnish that has really tinted this picture. And up at the top, you can see it was actually almost ripped in two because someone decided to frame it on a smaller frame. And so uh, a good man by the name of Michael Gallagher, here he is, you're going to see him. He did a, a restoration work. He first used chemicals to strip all of the old varnish, 
which is amazing. It doesn't harm the paint if you use the right chemicals. And then he flipped it over, and it took him a long time to repair the, the, the tear in the painting. Then he flipped it back over and retouched things. It took him about 10 months. The final stage was putting a new coat of varnish so that the, the colors really pop. So here is the old picture again uh, that we're going to put up. And then this is after the restoration. And... Uh, Well, you can see it there. Okay, yeah, split screen, good. So you can see on this side, look at the yellowing and the tinging, but there, the colors are so much more vibrant, right? That's the whole point of restoration, that there's a a renewal, um, a return to the original vibrancy of the work. And this is, I think, a very good description of what Jesus is doing. What he's saying is that this is something new that I'm doing, the new grace of God through my new work that's coming. They don't know yet on the cross, but really this is a restoration, a return to the original vibrancy, the mercy of God. You see, for years, uh, oh, I need lights on me, please. I'd like the focus to return to me. Um, <laughs> for years, uh, the, the, the people of God, their view of the law had been obscured, right? Kind of like those layers of varnish. They couldn't see it clearly. The emphasis on external law keeping meant that they didn't really see what godliness was all about. But as Jesus kind of strips it down and says, no, look, God's heart for people, that's what the law was all about. It it brings a vibrancy back to godliness. And so that's what Jesus is doing. In this this point of conflict, he is restoring mercy to the heart of godliness by appealing to the Old Testament and, secondly, by asserting his authority. And he does this with one amazing statement, verse 5, and he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you're not familiar with that uh, term, the Son of Man, that's a reference to um, uh, something from Daniel, a reference to uh, a term for the Messiah. And it's Jesus, it's his favorite way of referring to himself because it makes the connection for those who know that he is the Messiah and that he's, he's human, he's connected to humanity. So basically what Jesus is saying is, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, right? He's asserting his lordship, which means that he is, is declaring his supremacy, his divinity, and his authority, which really changes the whole discussion. In fact, it kind of ends the whole discussion because what he's saying is, look, we're talking about the way in which God wants us to relate to him, how to keep the law, but look, I wrote the law. It's like the best mic drop ever, right? I know you're talking about some things, but listen, I am God. And so the the whole conversation changes. You'll notice for Luke, it kind of stops. My guess is they probably didn't have much to say after that because what else would you say? It's just like if you're in poetry class, Some of you are probably still in school discussing poetry, which you can do forever. What did the poet mean here? Why did he use these words? Why did she? You could talk forever. If the poet enters the room, though, the discussion changes, right? You're not just kind of trying to figure out what they might mean. You can say, what what did you mean here? And, And so it's more about, oh, what did you intend? The focus shifts. And that's what Jesus does by asserting his authority. And that's important for us to see because what it means for those of us who want to follow Jesus is that we also have to recognize and accept his authority for every aspect of our life and every aspect of godliness. Jesus has told us that he has the right to forgive sins. He also has the right to reframe the Sabbath, to clarify the way of godliness for his people. So, uh, Jesus restores mercy to the heart of godliness through an appeal to the Old Testament through, through asserting his, uh, his authority, and, and then, though, he shows how it is that we should um, be merciful. Luke put the, puts these two together, I think, to have kind of a picture, a story of, of true godliness, true law-keeping, and then, and then have Jesus demonstrate it 
not just say that it's about caring for those in need, like his disciples who are hungry, saying, wouldn't God want to feed them? Absolutely, that's what the law is really about. But also, let me show you another example of how to actually um, show mercy to those in need. So, that's our second scene. I'm going to read now verses 6 to 11. Uh, And so, it begins this way. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So here we see Jesus, he restores mercy to the heart of godliness by showing mercy. But think for a moment um, about the mindset of the Pharisees. Like as you heard that scene described, so they're there. It's kind of like this kind of a environment. They're coming to worship God together on a, a Saturday, on a Sabbath. And there's a man there who's clearly, um, his hand is atrophied, right? There's probably for years. Do you notice that the Pharisees, that their whole mindset has nothing to do with the care or concern for the people in the room? They are looking to see whether Jesus would heal, and they're angry about it. Just think about that for a minute. Jesus might help someone, and they're like, man, I hope he doesn't help anyone, right? See, what we see here is the contrast between um, their, their distorted view of godliness and that of, that of Jesus. And Jesus, he, he doesn't just brush by it. He shines a spotlight on them. Uh, look at verses 8 and 9. But, but he knew their thoughts. By the Spirit of God, he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. So he's putting him right front and center. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, so he's pointing to the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? So you see, the questions are about more than what he's technically allowed to do on the Sabbath. It's on the Sabbath, but really the bigger questions is, what do you think the law is all about? What do you think a life of godliness is all about? Is it about law keeping or is it about mercy? What would God want us to do in this moment? That's what he's asking the Pharisees. And these are good questions, especially for that time, but but I think good questions for us today as well, for us as the church. Like, what is the church supposed to be about? What is all our godly living and our religious devotion? What what is the, the point of it all? Like, what difference does a life of godliness make for us and for the people in our lives, for our community? Are we as a church a people who are focused on on law-keeping and the judgment of God? Do we have a mindset that looks around and is quick to judge others because of the things that they're doing and not doing? Or are we full of mercy? Are we full of compassion? Now, we know what answer we want to give. And probably that is the, the answer of mercy probably is true for many of us in many circumstances of life, that there are many situations where we really do have compassion. We really do help. We're doing Samaritan's Purse for a reason because we really want to help and bless 
kids around the world, especially at Christmas. But I think that's not the, the best test of our hearts. A better test of our hearts would be how it is that we treat those who are difficult to show compassion to, difficult to be merciful to. How, how, do, we, like how do we treat them? What's our reaction in those situations? This came to mind uh, as I was uh, listening to a, I'm listening to kind of a serial investigative news story uh, that looks at the, the Cleveland justice system, the courthouse there. And that means that I've heard by this point a lot of cases. They look at it kind of from all different points of view. And in most of the cases, I'd say like 99% of the cases, the person who is accused is someone who has been uh, through the court system before. Sadly, this is uh, an area of, of United States where there is a lot of violence, there's a lot of crime. And so many of the men and women who are coming before a judge, they already have a rap sheet. They've already been through this before, and, and it tends to color the way that then we view them, at least for myself. I noticed this with one case in particular. This was a, a case where there's a young woman. Uh, she was at a bar on Friday night with her friends. They were at a bar that they don't usually go to. Uh, they were there drinking for most of the evening, and throughout the evening, uh, there was sort of a, a conflict that developed. There was a table near her with some guys who were, were giving her a hard time, being very abrasive, very rude. And there's another table of kind of regulars, some ladies that were there, and they were also giving her a hard time. And so they started to, you know, spar back and forth, kind of insult each other. There was a conflict that developed. It turned into a physical conflict where they got into each other's face, and the one table of ladies jumped this girl. And the reporter who was watching the video footage just described it as it just turned into a brawl that she was being kicked and hit from all sides. She was flailing around. Tables were being thrown everywhere. And at a certain point, a police officer came in and wanted to try to just settle the situation down. And this woman didn't know what was going on, didn't see the police officer. But at a certain point, she was flailing her arms and smacked the police officer right in the head. And uh, after things were settled down, she was charged. She was charged with assaulting a police officer. And the focus of the news story was really how the system tends to sometimes miss some of the, the facts of the case, which is that she was provoked, that she didn't really know who, who she had hit, and yet now she was facing some significant jail time. So my point in, in telling that story is, is not to make a point about judicial reform. My, my point is that what I noticed in my own mind as I thought about this, as I was listening to it, the kind of thoughts that would go through my mind were thoughts like this. I thought, you know, well, maybe if you weren't in a bar drinking on a Friday night, you wouldn't have these kinds of problems. I thought, maybe if, maybe if you would not respond in anger when someone was, you know, when you're in conflict, maybe then you wouldn't, you wouldn't be in this situation. I thought, maybe if you just, you know, if you could make some better life choices, then you wouldn't have this kind of trouble. And it occurred to me that that's, that's kind of a mindset that we see within, within the Pharisees. It's one of legalism. It's one that, if I'm honest with myself, I think that's not just news stories out there, which is where I respond in this way, but also for the people in my own lives. Have you noticed that in yourself? Especially if you veer towards um, a perfectionist, being a perfectionist, right? Where you, you're very, you very quickly come to the point of saying, you know, if you... If you could just live your life the way that I tell you, everything would go so much better, right? You wouldn't be in this trouble. I mean, just think of how you respond to different situations. Like if you had a friend 
who asked you, you know, about a situation and, and you gave them a certain counsel and they did something foolish that you told them not to do. And they're, they're in a real hard time now. They're, they're, they're suffering in some way. How do you respond to that? Are you quick to be like, well, if you would just listen to me, like I told you, your life would be better. Do you find that uh, is your natural response or, or can you really see that, I mean, there's heartache there. Like what about at work? If there's a work colleague that makes a mistake, that makes your job harder, and it's not the first time they've done it, what's your response? Are you, do you ream them out? Do you, do you look you know, with an icy glare above the cubicle at them all, all day? Do you badmouth them to the other people in the office and say, can you believe they did this again? Or do you have some grace? Do you have some understanding? How do we as a church respond to the crises in our community, those who are dealing with, with drug addiction, with, with persistent crime? Like, how do we, do we think to ourselves, man, if you would just, if you would make some better life choices, then, then it would, I wouldn't have to be in the situation of thinking about whether I'm going to help you, whether I'm going to, whether we as a community are going to do something on your behalf. Really, the question is, what does a life of godliness look like? Like, what is God calling us to? If we are here, if you're here this morning as a Christian, as part of the church, what is God expecting of us? Well, how does he want us to treat those in our lives who are in sin, who are being foolish, who are doing things that are not wise? How do, what's God's heart for those people? That's the deeper question behind what Jesus is asking in verse 9. He says to the Pharisees, look, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to, to, to save life or to destroy it? Do you notice he only gives two options? He only gives two options, and in that binary, he's really saying something very deep about, the, about what God calls us to in terms of mercy. Because for us, we like to think there's three options. To do good, to do harm, or to do nothing. To be, to be neutral. Right? There's many times when any given situation, we think to ourselves, man, I, I'd like to help, but I... For whatever reason, I just don't know if I can or I feel comfortable. Maybe the whole situation, I think it's kind of your fault, so I'm not sure how I'm supposed to wade into this. I'd like to help, but I just don't feel like I can right now. We think that there's this option where, where we can be neutral, and Jesus is saying that, doesn't, that option doesn't exist for the people of God. For anyone, but especially for the people of God. Jesus is saying either you are actively showing mercy or you are doing harm. If it's within your power to help someone, either you're fulfilling the law of God to show love or you are sinning against the one you could have helped. It's that clear. It's that weighty. And that's why really this, this morning we're talking about mercy instead of compassion. Because compassion, compassion is um, showing loving concern to someone who's suffering. And we need to do that. But mercy, mercy is showing compassion to someone where you have the, the power to harm them or to punish them. And what Jesus is saying is that if there's someone in need and you have the power to help them, then it's also within your power to harm them if you do nothing. It's a moral imperative that is implied within the, the, what Jesus is saying to the, to the Pharisees. He's saying, look, here's this guy. His hand is withered. We don't know why, we don't know how. We know, though, that he's been suffering for years. And Jesus is saying to the, the Pharisees, you know I can heal him. What do you want me to do? 
There's only two options. If we do nothing, we harm this man because his suffering continues. What do you think God wants us to do? See, this is the essence of godliness, that we are called to be be merciful, to be active, to be gracious and giving, to help those around us who are in need. And you might think to yourself, okay, that, I, I think I see that here in the text, but like if I live that way, like isn't that going to overwhelm my life? I mean, there's a lot of people in, in need just in my immediate friend and family group. If, if I'm reading this, if that's right, that, that's going to consume me. Isn't that going to just consume my life? That I'm going to be constantly caring for those people in need all the time? Well, yeah. Yeah, it will. Yeah, as to live a life of godliness, it will consume you. More than that, it should define you. I mean, isn't this the way that Jesus lived? Wasn't he all the time pouring himself out for the people who were in need? And if you're a Christian, aren't aren't you his follower? Wouldn't you expect to live a life like that? Where there were many times we were praying for God for strength because you're like, man, there's... Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I see this need and I want to help. That's what we see with Jesus all the time, caring for those around him, putting putting himself in other people's place and, and reaching out to them. Look at verse 10. We see what he does in this situation. After looking around at them all, so notice the Pharisees, they're not saying anything at this point, right? They're not sure what to say. They can see that he's... He's shining a light directly at them and their response, which is at this point, nothing. And then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. So notice, Jesus doesn't tell them the answer. I think that's also instructive. He's like, what should we do? What would God want us to do? He shows them. He doesn't just say, well, we should show mercy. He's like, he demonstrates. He shows mercy to this man. This man's arm is healed. He goes away rejoicing in God. It's one thing to know what godliness looks like. It's another thing to to do it and to do it consistently. This is the constant refrain of the New Testament. Look at James 1.25. James says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's that's a life of blessing, a life of godliness, is that we know the, the, the heart of God, and that we want to live life that way. And we notice there, there's a connection between being blessed by God. And it's no small blessing. Uh, there's a couple parts where it says that those who are merciful, they will receive mercy. Those who are forgiving, we will be forgiven. Why? Because it demonstrates the work of God in our lives. It's the fruit that comes from the root of godliness within us. And so the two always go together. It, it's evidence that God is at work. Which is why the, the final reaction of the Pharisees is, is really heartbreaking. It's devastating. Because it shows for these men who claim to be so close to God, they, they are so far from God. Their hearts are so hard. Look at their response. Look at their response. Think of what's just happened. Like someone has been healed. Someone who has been disabled for years has been healed. And look at their response. Verse 11. They were filled with fury. And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That's their response. They're angry. That word fury means furious. 
means they're, they're, almost, they're irate. They go off by themselves and they are so incensed. And imagine if you saw them go off and you went, and you're like, why are you guys so angry? Well, it's because Jesus shone a spotlight on their hearts, right? He exposed their sin. None of us likes that. And for them, they, they saw it as, as a point of confrontation. They hated it. What we need to see is that Jesus did provoke them, but it wasn't, it wasn't just to show them up. It wasn't just to make them mad. Jesus was provoking them to a point of crisis, and that too was an act of mercy. Do you see that? See, Jesus, he could have done everything he did in this scene and even with the, the grain fields without, without provoking any crisis, any conflict with the Pharisees. If his disciples were hungry, I mean, Jesus, he, you know, he can multiply food, right? He could have fed them easily. They didn't have to pick grain. If he wanted to heal this man, he could have done it before or after in a way that wasn't shining the spotlight. He didn't have to create such an uproar, but he did. He did because if he had done it the other way, there would have been filled bellies and healed bodies. Everyone who needed help would have been helped except for those who needed it the most. Like in these two scenes, the ones who need the most help are the Pharisees. They're the ones who are farthest from God. And do you notice that Jesus, he didn't stay neutral with them. He didn't, he didn't take the third option and say, well, you guys have got your thing going on. I'm going to do my ministry. We'll just stay out of each other's way. No, he purposefully brought things to a, to a point of crisis. And he did it for their benefit. He, he hoped that they might, for the first time, perhaps see clearly their own heart. Like see how hard-hearted they were. And that they might see more clearly what godliness is really about. That it's about love for people. And so in confronting them in their sin, he, it was Jesus full of mercy for them towards the people that hated him. And they were discussing what they were going to do. They were going to kill him. They were going to find a way to get him on a cross. And even there, Jesus, his heart for them is, man, I hope you see the truth. And some did. Like Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, he came to faith. He, he saw clearly who God is and saw his own sin. See, Jesus, he restores mercy to the heart of godliness by showing mercy both to the man with the withered hand and to the Pharisees, and we should do the same. Which means sometimes, sometimes we are going to be called to show great compassion to those in need. Like we are going to have to extend ourselves beyond what we would feel comfortable doing so that we can care for those around us. But sometimes it's going to mean confronting the people in our lives uh, about their sin. Because in both cases, our, our desire is that people come to know God more. And that's the most merciful thing we can do. The, the, the kindest, most compassionate thing is, is to lead people to see their need for Jesus. And really, that's the biggest point of application in this passage. Where is God calling us to show mercy to people in our lives? Where is there an opportunity to, to give, to help, to serve? And where is there a conversation that we need to have? I'd encourage you, if, if you're feeling that, that sense of conviction, like, man, there's someone who I, I just think I need to talk to, I'd really encourage you to pray about that. Pray about that. Ask for a clarity of your own conscience. 
Are you wanting to confront someone in sin because of something in, some selfishness or pride in yourself? That's not going to make things go well. But ask for the Spirit of God to give you clarity and humility and, and to work in the heart of, of the person you're, you're coming to talk to and in the hopes that they might see things clearly, that God might use you. But there's one other point of application that, that may be for some of us in the room, and, and that that is that it could be that some of us are being provoked in our own lives right now by God. It could be that we, on some level, are, are angry with our lives. That, that, that something that God is doing, something that someone in our life has done, and, and we're, we feel as if we're being provoked. We feel furious in a sense that things shouldn't be this way. This isn't the way that you expected them to be. And could I just ask the question, is it possible that in this point of crisis, God is being very merciful to you? I know that's how it's happened in my life many times. That God was provoking me to a point where I would see more clearly my own heart. And that I would recognize, man, things are, it's actually, I've had a distorted view of God. I've had a distorted view of, of, of my sin. I haven't, it's been opaque. Like those layers of varnish, I just haven't seen things clearly. But by God's grace, he brings me to a point through the people in my life, through the word of God, where I can repent, where I can accept his mercy. Because the truth is that that's, that's what this is all leading to, right? This whole journey is leading to, to Jesus giving of himself on the cross so that we would be able to receive the mercy of God. So that in spite of our poor choices, our sin, our foolishness, all the things that we end up in a horrible place, God is still gracious. And Jesus says, I've, I've come to give my life for you because you couldn't, you couldn't make things right with God on your own. So within that, that picture of restoration, we see, here, we see here a restoration of mercy to the heart of godliness. And we see also the, the foreshadow of how that will, that will make things right for everyone who comes to faith. For everyone who sees their, their own sin clearly and sees the heart of Jesus clearly which is not just to bring confrontation for confrontation's sake, but because he really wants to change us and to reach us. So let's close in prayer and then let's respond in, in worship to our God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your, your continued acts of mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that even in this, this scene with these Pharisees that were so angry, Jesus, really beneath that, you, you had a heart for them. Jesus, you, you wanted for them and for all who call in the name of, of God to, to understand what it means to live a godly life, to better understand the heart of God for mercy and grace and love. And I just pray for us. I pray you'd help each one of us. Lord, whether we're here as a believer or not, I pray that each one of us would have that grace for the people around us. And especially if we know you, Jesus, I pray that because of your example, we would want to live that way. We would be willing to, to give of ourselves to such an extent that people would be, would be loved, would be touched. And Lord, especially when it's in a situation where it's hard, for whatever reason, it's hard to, to love someone, to be gracious. God, I pray you'd give us that strength in light of your grace for us. And I pray especially uh, for those of us who are feeling that point of, of conflict, of crisis, of, of perhaps anger. God, would you, would you be gracious to us? Would you minister to us? And Lord, help us to come back into faithfulness with you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.